All right, if you have a Bible with you, you can open it up to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 10. And if you didn't get a note sheet on the way in, so kind of the way we're doing these message note sheets, they're in the two black round tables. Permission given if you want to get up and grab a note sheet, or you can get it on the way out if you want to just get I try to put on the note sheet some things that I think might be helpful as you process, not just while we're together here this morning, but something you can take home with you and perhaps process through during the week. So those will be there kind of each week on the tables, on the way in the door. And I know that's kind of a, a new pattern. And those of you who are joining us, visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. And thank you for everyone joining us online, your online hosts. Those of you joining us digitally, they can direct you to some online notes as well. Well, 1945 was an amazing draft class in the, in the arena of the traveling evangelist. Here's a photo. Anybody see a familiar face in the photo? So you've got on the far left to you there is a gentleman named Braun Clifford. In the middle, the bow tie, Chuck Templeton. Of course, the man on the right with the hand raised up is a well-known figure to all of us, right? Billy Graham. But in 1945 and 46, they were filling arenas from coast to coast, packing them out. Primarily, Braun Clifford and Chuck Templeton. I mean, they were just stacked. They would just be like, picture the old day, picture like Banker's Life Fieldhouse, Conseco Fieldhouse, filled with these guys proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. As a matter of fact, in 1946, Chuck Templeton, there was an article written by a seminary professor who went to visit one of his settings where Ch Templeton was preaching. And he wrote, quote, the best and most talented preacher in America today, end quote. The headline of the article was, Men Best Used by God. And it was all about Chuck Templeton, all about Bron Clifford. Billy Graham's name wasn't even mentioned. And they said of Bron Clifford, when he would go into the arenas, they said people would stack outside the auditorium door. So the auditoriums would fill up, and then they would go 10 and 12 deep outside the doors of the auditorium just to get within earshot of what Bron Clifford was going to say. When he went to Baylor University, the president of Baylor invited him to a chapel service. When he went to Baylor, the president of the school told the person who worked the school bell system back in the 40s, that's how they determined when a class ended and you go to your next class, he told the school bell marshal, turn off the bells. Braun Clifford can preach as long as he wants to preach. I'll just tell you that never happened to me, ever. <laughs> ever. No one's ever said those kinds of things, but. They said that all of the world leaders and all the national leaders of that day, they all wanted an audience with Braun Clifford and Chuck Templeton. Well, that was 1945. 1950, just five years after that photo and after all those arenas, just five years, 1950, Chuck Templeton decided he needed to step out. Can't, he said, I can't keep doing this traveling evangelist thing. I can't keep going and opening God's word and proclaiming Christ because I'm not, I'm not quite sure I believe that what Jesus says in here is really something I can build my life on. He's like, I'm not sure about the claims of Christ anymore. Uh, I'm not sure that this is really God's word anymore. Uh, at least he was wise enough to know if he's not quite sure 
what he's talking about. If he's not really all in to believe it, he's like, you know, I need to step aside. And so he left the ministry, went into a career in newsprint and media and radio and television. He eventually authored a book. The title of it is this, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. He died of Alzheimer's in 2001. It was Chuck Templeton. Braun Clifford, 1954, just nine years after that photo, after he'd gotten started, just nine years, 1954, he lost his wife, he lost his health, he lost his ministry, he left his wife and his two Down syndrome children. Alcohol was his primary kind of internal demon he was battling. And in 1954, in a rundown motel on the outskirts of Amarillo, Texas, they found him dead. Cirrhosis of the liver. He literally drank himself to death in 1954. Which raises the question, when you look at the photo of, of three guys who, who started and were flourishing and doing amazing ministry, what? What is it about this, where are the finishers? Like, where's the guys who are going to be in the race for the long run? And I'm not talking about the ministry. I'm talking about the faith. Where's the guys like the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4 when he's at the end of his life? And he says to his young understudy, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I'm not talking about finishing the ministry. I'm talking about finishing the faith. That we could say in our elderly years from the hospice wing, we're finishing, we're growing stronger as we grow older. Where are the finishers? Because the pull to fade, it seems really strong. I'm often drawn to Jesus' parable in Matthew 13 on this topic. It came to me several years ago, I think in my regular Bible reading and, and just being in the ministry for a bit. I, I felt like the parable of the soil gave us like a good like template for understanding this kind of the field of the human heart. And if you know the parable, it's four soils, right? You've got the hard-packed soil, you've got the rocky soil, you've got the weed-infested soil, and then you've got the good soil. And I remember one day sitting there and thinking, Jesus, only 25%. 75% of the time, now listen, 100% is the seed was sown. 100% of the time, they're getting started. You know, it's not easy to be a Christian, but it's very easy to start. And 100% of them started, but 75% kind of plucked away, burned away, choked away. Only 25% flourished and finished. So what I want to look at this morning is, church, what's it going to take for us to be in the 25%? Because it seems as if to just kind of coast along, we're probably going to end up in the 75%. I don't think Templeton or Clifford ever sat down and said, this is how they want to exit. So what about that 25%? to flourish in the finish, to say you're going to grow stronger as you grow older. 
Well, the character we're in, Julia did a great job with Solomon's beginning stage last week, right? If you didn't listen to her message last week, uh, listen to it. She talked about how Solomon in his early years was a man of great wisdom, and the wisdom came from God, like he sought God. He had a humble heart to pursue God. God said, ask for anything, and he asked for wisdom. I mean, Solomon in his early years, you would have, you would have put your money down on this guy that he'd been in the 25%, that he's going to flourish and be in it. At age 20, he becomes the third king of Israel. Remember, your first king is who? Saul, second king is David, and now we're on the third king, Solomon, and we're going to look at now what's said of kind of what I think is a window into he had a great start, humble beginning, sought God, pursued God's wisdom. And look at 1 Kings 7, 1, it says, it took Solomon 13 years, however, to construct his palace. It took seven years to build the temple, 13 to build his palace. There's a little window into something. I put a picture up here on the screen of the size of his complex, right? So there's the temple area, a rendering of it, and there's his palace complex. Anybody notice anything? Now, we're going to get to in a bit, he had to have a quite a large residency for the family life he chose to live. But he had lots of servants. But look at that. There's a little window. Something might be askew. Something might be, hey, you might be heading down the fade path here in Solomon. Combine that with now, chapter 10, verse 14 of 1 Kings says, this is his annual salary. The weight of gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. Modern day equivalent, the way gold is trading these days, the amount, I did the math, Solomon would have made $1.5 billion this year, annual salary. So lest we think, you know, Bezos and Buffett and Gates are like the founders of the billionaire club. Nope. Solomon was there for anybody. So this is his beginning, right? The, he's building the temple, which is clearly his heart for God. He wants to honor God. He wants to do the right thing. He's, his temple's built. His palace is built. The economy's growing. The military's expanding. He's prospering. The cabinet's prospering. The nation is prospering. Here's the environment around Solomon. Look at 1 Kings 10, verse 1. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, see, he had a relation to the name. It's not that he didn't have. He started. She came to test him with hard questions. Verse 2, arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all she had on her mind. Verse 3, Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. Phenomenal, unbelievable wisdom, right? Verse 6, Queen of Sheba's comments about the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me in wisdom and wealth. You have far exceeded the report I have heard. Here's a picture of an artist's rendering of when the Queen of Sheba visited Solomon. You kind of get a scene, right? This would have been a, there's Solomon there in the white, and you just kind of there's the atmosphere around Solomon and his leadership. The ambiance, the setting. 
And then verse 23, look what it says. 1 Kings 10, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world, look, underline that in your Bible, the whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Wow. I read about a player who used to play for Coach Vince Lombardi, the great Hall of Fame football coach. The player was recalling that when Coach Lombardi would say, sit down, his player said, we didn't bother looking for a chair. That's Solomon. When Solomon said, sit down, no one bothered looking for a chair. And church, do you see how much interior world, do you see the strength of character that's required to uphold uh, an environment around you like that? When your exterior life looks like what Solomon's looks looking like in his early years, do you see how much it takes in here to, to handle that, to navigate? It takes a lot to navigate. If you say, sit down, everyone's not looking for a chair. They just sit. That right there. And here's where our window gets into the fade. It's like, what, what's the, what happened? And I don't know. I suspect if we went back and read through Chuck Templeton's book, we might get some insight into where this slope began in their journey and in their lives. But somewhere along the way for a Braun Clifford and a Chuck Templeton, it went like this, similarly with Solomon. Because we go into chapter 11 now, and we see here's a window into the fade. Verse 1, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites. Here's a quotation right in the margin of your Bibles, Deuteronomy 7. This is a quotation uh, the, the writer's bringing up. You must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. So Solomon knows this, he would have been raised in this environment. As we covered in our journey through the Old Testament so far, God made it really clear that the Israelites were to distinguish themselves, to separate themselves from all the other ites around them. And Solomon, he just, he just can't, he can't handle all the beautiful women around him, so he just intermarries with all of them, violating this command. Look what it says, nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Verse 3, he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. So much for keeping track of your anniversaries there. Now that's a commentary for a whole nother day going down that track. But let's, let's just say at a minimum here, right, that Solomon knows what God wants him to do and is choosing as an act of his own will consistently several hundred times to not do it. And the Bible says this begins the journey of leading him astray. And what's that pointing to? Well, this is pointing to, jump down to verse 7 and 8. Here's the astray unpacked. On the hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Kamash, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives. All of them? That's a lot of high places. That's a lot of sacrifices on altars who, bear, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their god. So here's a picture of at least two of the gods referenced here, of Kamosh and of Molech. 
the God of Moab and the God of the Ammonites. And here's a window into Solomon's fade because the God of Molech, as you see in the photo here, that they would offer children as a part of the sacrifice. That's what the fire underneath Molech had the hands raised out. And they said they would place firstborn infant children in the hand of Molech there and the fire would heat up this metal area and the children would be burned and sacrificed to death there. And all the instruments at the base of Molech were there being played to kind of overshadow the screaming and wailing of the mothers and the fathers and the family members who were losing their child to this. This church is the third king of Israel who's supposed to be representing Yahweh to all the other peoples of the earth. This is the man who started asking for wisdom, who the Word says God put wisdom in his heart. He had an amazing start. He was packing the auditoriums. People were going 10 and 12 deep to hear what this guy had to say. And then here we are in the middle of his life, He goes from calling out to God for wisdom to marrying more women than there are days in the calendar year, to sacrificing children at the high places of the gods of Moab and the Ammonites. It reminded me of a poem I read years ago. I put it in your notes. Ed Sissom, a poet, he said, Men past 40, get up nights. Look out at city lights and wonder why life is so long and where they made the wrong turn. So with the remainder of our time, I just want to unpack two what I think are substantial wrong turns in Solomon's journey that function as a bit of a dashboard in our own journey to say, hey, are we paying attention to these things? Because I think when we go down these roads, the pull to fade is going to overcome the call to finish. The first one I wrote down from Solomon's journey is when enough is never enough. Somewhere in Solomon's formation, greed got its claws into his heart and took him to a place he never imagined being. Again, I don't think Solomon ever sat down and thought, this is how I want the trajectory of my life to go. I don't think he ever sat down and kind of Run the tape out. Think it through. No? One mansion wasn't enough. It became two or three. One export agreement wasn't enough. It became 10, 20, 30. One wife wasn't enough. It became, you think after he got past double digits, it might have been a little, but it's the monster of more when you think of greed. It's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. Watch out, Jesus said. Be on your guard against all, notice this, all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. See, the monster of more can show up in different forms, right? It can be more possessions, it can be more power, it can be more pleasure, more approval, more accomplishments, more attention. When enough is never enough, you're probably on a slippery slope to the fade. And I think you combine that With this, the second thing I wrote down is when you're doing or about to do the very thing you vowed you'd never do. Like Solomon knew deep down in his heart, he could have quoted Deuteronomy 7 and he just played the mental gymnastics. You ever get in that place where you kind of go through the mental gymnastics knowing deep down in your heart what God wants you to do, but you kind of 
mentally rationalize your way to what you really want to do, and you get to that place, and you walk in those ways. It's what Charles Spurgeon said, beware of no man more than yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. It's that. Many years ago, I recall receiving a phone call in the office of the church. It was from an elderly couple. I'd been helping this family for a few years go through some challenging family dynamics. They'd been a part of the body for many years. And the wife had, was calling in the church office, and she couldn't hardly get her name out. All she was doing was sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And so after a few minutes where she calmed down and collected herself, she said, Eric, I woke up this morning to a note on the kitchen table. It's from my husband. The note said this, I'm sorry, I found someone else, I'm leaving to be with her. They've been married for 57 years. He was in his mid-70s, he had met a former classmate online, and so he packed up his bags, he loaded up the car, he wrote the note, and he drove to Boston, Massachusetts to be with his former classmate. And three days later, he died. Can you imagine the layers of grief that this wife was working through? When we began to sit down and talk about how do you, how do you honor 57 years Three days from the finish line. Just three days. How do, you, how do you do that and then reconcile? Can you see all the unresolved stuff for this wife when she didn't have any more conversations? She, didn't, she had a note on the kitchen table with the final communication. So church, lest we think this story of Solomon is some ancient text of a king that doesn't connect with everyday life here. This pull to fade is real, and this pull to fade is deep. And maybe this morning finds you in your own place of a slippery slope in some degree. Maybe you've been working through your own mental gymnastics about maybe your own scenario you're crafting. Maybe you've been forming your own note in your mind or whatever. You know in your heart of hearts, you're in a place where you're like, deep down, by the Holy Spirit, you know what God wants, and the wrestling matches, will you bow to what God wants? That. Or maybe the claw of the monster of more has gotten into your heart in a place where just greed's kind of taking over and pulling you to some places. Or maybe it's just a casualness and a drifting where you go, boy, I just haven't really thought very deeply about the trajectory of my life. And if I run the tape out on it, where does this go? Church, I think the 25%, one common characteristic is there's intentionality with the 25%. You can't really coast. You can't really just kind of pick the oars up out of the water and just drift along in the canoe of life. No, I don't know. So if that's where you're at this morning, I want to leave you with some hope that 
It doesn't have to end like Solomon. It doesn't have to exit. We'll get into more next week, like what happens on the, you can picture, right, where things begin to disintegrate and unravel and the nation fractures on the backside of this, where God's call is to finish, to grow stronger as you grow older, and instead Solomon fades into these spaces and goes the way of a Chuck Templeton and a Braun Clifford. But it doesn't have to end that way because, as the photo at the beginning said, right, can you put the photo back up? There was a third guy in the picture, right? Billy Graham died in February 2018, at the age of 99. Here's a profile of a finisher. You know what the definition of a finisher was? If you've read his biography at all, which I commend to you, Billy Graham wasn't a perfect guy. He would be the first to admit his family talked about. He wasn't perfect. But he knew where to go with his failures. He took his failures to Jesus. One of the things that was true of Billy's life, he had this compass in his heart towards Christ, and even if he didn't get it right, he just went to Jesus. Isn't that a great picture? He just kept pursuing Jesus. He, he didn't take his foot off the gas with Jesus. He didn't pick the oars up out of the water. He battled through even the things that weren't quite right. Again, not perfect, but finished. They said of Billy Graham when some people would show up at his house down in North Carolina in his older years, they said he would sit in his bed with a binder of the book of Psalms because he couldn't read his Bible anymore. His eyes weren't strong enough to read the biggest of print. So he told his ministry assistant to print up the book of Psalms and the font was like three, four inch letters. And it was this massive binder of the book of Psalms and he was sitting in his bed. That's right there. Right there. Because he says, I can't go a day without meeting with my God and calling out to Him. At 99 years old, he's still running the race. He's finishing, not the ministry, but the faith. And so when it came time for his memorial service, the prisoners of the Louisiana State Penitentiary, Angola Prison, do a little research, read a little bit about that group. That's one of Billy and Ruth Graham's primary ministry they had, mostly in hiddenness. People didn't realize they were going and visiting this prison and ministering to these prisoners for years and years and years. And the prisoners said, Billy, we want to make your casket for your funeral. And Billy's like, no, you know, you don't need to do that. No, we want to make your casket. No is not really an option. And if you see those guys, yeah, you're probably not taking no. So Billy said this, one stipulation he told him. Here's a picture of his casket. When you make the casket, you're going to put a simple cross right above where my face will be because he says, I want every person who comes and looks at that casket to know this, the only explanation for Billy Graham's life is that cross. Church, I submit to you, that's a vision of a finisher. That's someone who landed in the 25%. Not impossible, but a bit rare. 
75% of the time, it gets plucked away, burned away, choked away, but 25%, it hits that soil that's soft and deep and uncluttered, and it'll take your breath away. Now, you and I, by His grace, could get to the end of this run and say from the hospice wing, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let's be a congregation of finishers. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just want to take a moment, and maybe you're here or listening online, and this word lands at a place that's maybe catching you on the, on the cusp of a big decision, or, or maybe right on the edge of some slippery slope, and maybe today you can just say in your hearts, you know what, nope, I'm not going that way, I'm not fading. All you got to do right now is just say, Jesus, help me. You just call out to Jesus, right where you are, you just call out, say, Jesus, help me. And then in your heart now, commit to one conversation with a trusted friend about this. Just one conversation with someone you trust who can provide some good spiritual direction. So call out to God and have a conversation. For by your grace, Lord, we want to be, you know, Billy at 99, sitting on his bed with a binder of the book of Psalms, calling out to you, laying in the casket with a simple cross above his face that the commentary of our, the only explanation for our life of faith is that cross. May it be so with us. Use these sobering stories you've preserved for us of Solomon and others to be a good checkpoint. By your grace, may it be said of us, we would grow stronger as we grow older. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.